When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Oh, the market's not so good today. Your stocks look kind of sick. In fact, they all drop down a point each time the tickers tick. We'll have to have more margin now, there isn't any doubt. So you better dash with a load of cash or we'll have to sell you out. A 1929 song, A Tale of the Ticker, by American vaudeville star Frank Crummit, with lyrics that shed light on the problems involved in the stock market. Just a few weeks later, Crummit's analysis came true with the devastating collapse of share prices on the New York Stock Exchange. What followed was the Great Depression, the longest, deepest and most widespread depression of the 20th century. But why did the Wall Street crash come about? How did President Hoover respond? And what were Hoovervilles? What was Roosevelt's New Deal? And how did the Great Depression actually come to an end? I'm Rob Weinberg, and to find out the answers to the big questions about this far-reaching event, I've been speaking to Dr. Noam Magur at Queen Mary University of London. This is How and Why History. Noam Magor, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. How was the Wall Street crash brought about? The Wall Street crash of 1929 is the iconic event that announced the onset of the Great Depression in America, famous event. Monday, October 28th, and Tuesday, October 29th, those were the two most disastrous days in the history of Wall Street. They raised tens of millions of dollars in savings in a few hours. In today's money, this would be hundreds of billions of dollars. And things after the crash, something you perhaps hear less about, things got actually worse and worse. So the lowest mark for the market actually arrived about two years later in 1932. And recovery didn't really recover until 1954. So this was obviously a massive crash. Now, what brought this crash about? Obviously, that's a very complicated question that historians and economists have been debating. In the aftermath of the crash, the American Senate formed a commission to investigate what precisely went wrong. This became known as the PCORA Commission, was led by Ferdinand PCORA. This was quite high drama in the early 1930s. PCORA was the son of Sicilian immigrants grew up quite poor on the west side of New York City, rose up to become the assistant district attorney 
And during the hearings, these hearings extended for weeks and weeks, this guy Pakora publicly interrogated the high priests of Wall Street. These were distinguished men from overwhelmingly old Protestant families from New York and from Boston, men like Richard Whitney, who's the president of the New York Stock Exchange, Thomas Lamont, partner in J.P. Morgan. Suddenly, he put them in the hot seat, not a place that they were used to. And these hearings really dramatized the old money, the old families who controlled Wall Street against this new figure who was really became kind of the face of a new ethnically diverse uh, working class in America that would soon become the foundation for the rise of the Democrats and the rise to power of FDR. Now, what did they reveal during the hearings? The like stock exchange, they realized, controlled much of the country's savings, but it was run very much like a small private club. It was a secretive organization. It had a long tradition of being fairly insular, opaque. It was controlled by a small group of men who were connected to one another in all sorts of personal ways. These men made their own rules. And the commission really pulled away, uh, lifted the veil. It exposed the inner workings of Wall Street to the world for the first time and revealed a lot of embarrassing details. The bankers on Wall Street were using the nation's money as their own. They were taking interest-free loans for people in the inside circle. Insiders were getting preferential treatment. There are various tax evasion schemes. Some of the richest Americans, it was revealed, paid nothing in taxes through various loopholes. They engaged in various fraudulent practices of packaging bad loans, selling them to unsuspecting clients at home and abroad. So these men, these distinguished men from Wall Street who were viewed as beyond reproach, the epitome of good character, good upbringing, were revealed to be high-minded crooks with a questionable set of ethics, certainly not as all-knowing, uh, not as intelligent as they had liked to portray themselves. The commission paved the way for federal regulation of the financial sector, uh, including the famous Glass-Steagall Banking Act that separated commercial and investment banking. Also, uh, it announced the formation of the Securities and Exchange Commission, of which Pecora himself became the head. This was a real changing of the guards, so to speak. The internal workings of Wall Street that have faced virtually no public scrutiny beforehand, and bankers really very jealously guarded the privacy of those institutions, those high financial institutions, were now forced to operate out in the open to disclose information, to be accountable to the public at large. But to go back to your question, were these bad practices the reason for the crash itself, would it have been avoided if Wall Street had acted more responsibly and ethically? I'm not entirely sure. The crash, I think, was ultimately much more of a symptom of deeper structural problems in the economy than a cause. And this is often typical for financial bubbles, financial crises, that in fact they expose deeper imbalances within the global capitalist system. So there's a few terms associated with the Wall Street crash. One of them is Black Tuesday. What was Black Tuesday? Yes. So Black Tuesday is that day in October that I mentioned earlier, the most disastrous day in the history of Wall Street, famously. 
during the 1920s, at least since 1921, the stock prices were soaring, uh, were rising to unprecedented heights. The optimism reached a peak in 1929. And as these things go, investors at some point were no longer buying shares based on merits or the economic fundamentals, but because they were convinced that prices would simply continue to rise indefinitely. Wall Street fueled this in part. For example, they introduced uh, an innovation that's quite familiar to us today, the idea of purchasing stocks on margin, which meant that you didn't actually need to have the money in cash to purchase a stock. You could pay 10% and borrow from a broker to pay for it later, presumably once the price went up. And all of these new practices, some of these financial innovations fed into the speculative bubble. But as I mentioned, the Black Tuesday, this kind of day of reckoning, I think was in the workings for quite some time. So I wouldn't pin this on one practice or one type of financial innovation. I think those innovations made things worse, but they didn't fundamentally create the atmosphere on Wall Street that led to Black Tuesday. So what was the impact of the crash on businesses and finances? This was quite a stunning turn. You know, we have to remember that by the late 1920s, the United States had become the wealthiest country in the world. By some measures, the wealthiest country the world had ever known. Growth over the first few decades of the 20th century was very rapid. The U.S. in the 19th century was overwhelmingly agrarian, nation of farmers by the 1920s. The U.S. had become heavily urbanized and industrialized. Uh, millions of Americans were driving automobiles and were pouring off the assembly lines in Detroit. Millions were purchasing radio receivers. They were attending talking movies. They were shopping in department stores. They were purchasing things via this year's mail-in catalogs. There were some warning signs already in the 1920s. There was a speculative boom in real estate in Florida and California. The agricultural sector was in many ways depressed. Farm prices were declining. Farmers were getting deeper into debt. Demand for consumer goods also was slowing after 1926, not to mention all the troubles in Europe, uh, which Americans were definitely aware of and following closely. Not everything was perfect, but the general mood was one of optimism and general prosperity. What Americans had difficult time coming to terms with, I think, was that when the crash came, it wasn't simply a financial event on Wall Street, which very few Americans were actually directly invested in shares in financial assets at that point. It was uh, the beginning of a very prolonged economic slump of epic proportions. It took a bit of time for this to dawn on people, that this was a new normal, that things were not going back to the way they were in the 1920s. So again, to go back to your question in terms of the impact on business, 26,000 businesses went under in 1930. The businesses that survived were cutting back. They were laying people off. Economic output generally across the board dropped by a full third. Unemployment, which was low in the 1920s, right around 5%, rose to 25%. So we're talking about millions and millions of people. Farmers lost their land in great numbers that were evicted. They were taking to the road in search of new opportunities. Very slowly became clear that the entire model of American capitalism would have to be restructured in some fairly fundamental ways for prosperity to return.
market simply goes to prove that we still have local weeds. For the bull buys what he doesn't want, and the bear sells what he needs. I bought an elevator stock and thought that I'd done well. Then the little bears all ran downstairs and rang the basement bell. And here is the song I heard the whole day long. Oh, the market's not so good today. Your stocks look kind of sick. In fact, they all drop down a point each time the tickers tick. We'll have to have more margin now. There isn't any doubt. So you better dash with a load of cash or we'll have to sell you out. And something like 2,000 banks closed as well by 1931. Yes. Obviously, the collapse on Wall Street led to a huge credit crunch and then a wave of bank closures. These bank closures, in some ways, were actually had more direct and more devastating effect on the economy. The banking system of the United States at that point, and still to a large extent, was structured very much like a pyramid with the banks of New York at the apex. So local and regional banks in the United States often held their reserves in New York. New York banks were sitting on those reserves, often lending them to brokers on Wall Street who invested that money in stocks and bonds. So this kind of pyramid structure meant that when the stock market crashed, this really reverberated throughout the economy way beyond New York, reaching basically every community in the entire country. With banks teetering, they were calling in loans that borrowers were now unable to pay. This led to an epidemic of bank failures in the early 30s, state after state. Depositors were pushing their way, running on the bank, trying to get their cash. Savings accounts were erased. Credit supply rapidly shrunk. This obviously accelerated the downward plunge of the economy. Was there a particular sector of the population that was affected? Yes. Well, you know, when I was getting my PhD at Harvard, I used to ask my students about the impact of the Great Depression on their families. Uh, and I would get the weirdest responses as some of them complained, for example, that you know, one of them told me once that his grandfather had lost one of his factories. Or, you know, another one told me that his family had to let a few of their servants go during the Great Depression. Needless to say, that's not representative of how most Americans contended or faced the challenge. The challenges that most Americans faced during the Great Depression, most of them had more pressing challenges like keeping their jobs, feeding families, heating their homes in the winter. Overall, I would say, in some ways, the answer is no, that one of the interesting things about the Great Depression is that everyone was affected, was incredibly universal in how it really attacked all sections of the economy, all regions, cities, the countryside, industry, agriculture, finance, trade, housing, retail, all of these sectors were massively affected. So this was not a crisis that affected one region or one industry, but the entire American economy almost uh, universally. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Did the way that President Hoover responded contribute more to the coming depression? First, and this maybe relates also to your earlier question, It's important to remember that the U.S. had basically nothing in terms of a welfare state at that point. There was nothing, no government uh, institutions or agencies in place to protect Americans from poverty and from unemployment. Uh, Americans had mostly relied on voluntary self-help associations, neighborhood associations, usually connected with ethnic and religious organizations. And this was really the safety net that was in place. So if you were a worker, you would pay a little bit into a shared pool along with other people who went to the same church or synagogue or the same kind of immigrant community. And then your family would receive assistance if you were injured or if you lost your job. Uh, Needless to say, with the Great Depression, these community organizations were simply not equipped to contend with that kind of challenge of this kind of scale and scope when everybody was suddenly in need. Those funds were quickly depleted, and this led many Americans to begin to agitate and support new policies. They wanted the federal government to step in and assume perhaps a broader role, take more responsibility for their well-being. The man in charge, Hoover, by all accounts, was a highly competent man known as the great engineers. He had a career as a mining engineer. And against the mythology, he was actually quite active trying to address the situation. But like everybody else around him, he viewed the crisis through the experience of the past. So he misjudged the magnitude of the crisis. He thought that maybe prosperity would come back within a fairly short period of time. He focused his efforts on restoring business confidence, business investment. He would meet with business leaders. He asked the Fed to ease access to credit. He tried to get the public sector, particularly city governments, state governments, to launch construction projects, something that the federal government was ill-equipped to do at that point. And these types of initiatives basically failed to take off. 
The economic orthodoxy at the time was that budgets had to be balanced. The economic crisis in many ways was interpreted as a result of overspending, of lack of fiscal discipline. So in that kind of environment, it was actually difficult for businesses or for state governments to take a more aggressive action. Hoover also famously signed the Hawley uh, Smooth Tariff Act that aimed to help domestic manufacturers, but obviously had disastrous effect on international trade. So I wouldn't say that these efforts made things worse, but they clearly did not succeed in taking off and addressing the root cause of the Great Depression. What were Hoovervilles? Shanty towns built by homeless Americans in cities around the country. They sprung up uh, seemingly overnight in public spaces in various cities, providing kind of makeshift temporary homes for people who'd been evicted, who lost their jobs. And they quickly were named after Hoover. They became visible signs in the American landscape of economic distress. They helped discredit him as president. There's another famous incident connected with the Hoovervilles, in fact, that helped discredit him uh, as president was a confrontation with what was called the Bonus Army in Washington, a famous incident. These were uh, World War I veterans who marched to Washington. They demanded their bonus payments as a form of poor relief. And in July 1932, they occupied Pennsylvania Avenue right across from the White House. And they requested to get those funds, funds that were owed to them, but not until 1945. They said, we need this money now to survive during the economic downturn. The Senate refused their request. And Hoover, who this was an indication of his uh, bad politics, that he didn't quite understand the change in public sentiment, sent in federal troops to remove those men from the encampment. Federal troops came in with tanks, with cavalry, with infantry, with bayonets. They burnt down the encampment. And this was a disaster, not only for those men who were injured and uh, removed from the space, but it also showed Hoover's insensitivity and the insensitivity of his administration to the real suffering of ordinary people. These were World War I veterans who couldn't be labeled as subversives or radicals or dangerous elements. So this really, with the Hoovervilles and with this incident, this really solidified the fact that Hoover had no real chance of getting reelected. And was the depression exacerbated by the weather that America was experiencing at that time as well? Yes, and it's really interesting how these things are related. Famously, there's a Dust Bowl. It was an ecological disaster that hurt some of the plain states uh, in the 1930s, essentially wiping out entire counties in the middle of the country. This affected mostly farmers who migrated to those arid territories in search of land and they were assured by some questionable experts about commercial agriculture would be viable in those region. There is a pervasive belief that rain would follow the plow. So if you move out to these arid regions, that somehow rainfall would increase, uh, which turned out to not be true. But I think this is an interesting dimension of the Great Depression. It shows the, the connection between basically the environmental dimensions of capitalist expansion capitalism pushing the environment to the limits, pushing people to start farms in places where farming really was not viable and triggering an environmental response. So we see a connection between an economic system and environmental devastation 
and damage in this period. So Hoover is dealt with what was Roosevelt's New Deal. So Roosevelt comes in with the promise of a new deal, so a new transformational change, as we would say today. Obviously, you know, this would take two or three uh, entire lectures to try to cover the entirety of the New Deal. came in two waves. Each wave was a little bit different. There was a lot of experimentation. But I think the key feature of the New Deal was really action on all fronts, not trying to contend with the Great Depression by dealing only with, say, investment and business, but actually tackling the Great Depression on a variety of fronts. So... There was a financial dimension to the New Deal, trying to stabilize the financial system, adding regulation. There was a bank holiday, stopping the bank runs and allowing the bank system to stabilize. There was a massive public works effort as part of the Great Depression, which provided jobs, put people back to work, but ultimately also built up the nation's infrastructure very much to this day, if you travel around the United States, a lot of the infrastructure that you're using was built during the 1930s as part of the New Deal, schools, roads, dams, water infrastructure, public buildings. This was entirely new for the federal government to have such an intimate presence and direct presence in virtually every county, every city, every town around the country. There were massive housing initiatives, maybe in response to things like the Hoovervilles that we talked about, uh, reconstructing the housing sector. Mostly this was done not through public housing, although that was part of it, but mostly through providing various incentives to private corporations, private investors. For example, through federally insured loans, the federal government realized that by providing various incentives, it could get the private sector to invest in, in housing, reshaping the housing market, this was in turn extended to other industries as well. And I think most importantly, perhaps something that gets lost often in uh, discussions of federal activism during the New Deal is the Wagner Act that for the first time lent the federal government support for collective bargaining with workers, particularly through the unions of the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations. For the first time, millions of workers, including unskilled workers, semi-skilled workers, became organized in a massive way. Industries previously not uh, had uh, organized workers steal automobiles. This obviously provided workers with good jobs, job security, but it also created the blue-collar middle class that ultimately made economic recovery possible. So it created a new class of fairly well-off or adequately provided for workers who in turn were able to provide a market for the goods that the economy was able to, to generate in the 1940s and 1950s. So it really addressed one of the key imbalances, uh, so to speak, in the capitalist system up to that point, which was insufficient demand in the economy. So you had capacity to produce, but you didn't have a mass base of consumers. So through the Wagner Act, the federal government is actually creating a massive class of workers who are also able to buy homes, to buy appliances, buy automobiles, and provide the market for a lot of the consumer goods that the economy was generating. What was the global impact of the Wall Street crash? 
There's a Great Depression that is actually a global phenomenon and is connected with a whole array of global issues connected with trade, connected with investment, connected with relationships between Western Europe and the rest of the world in this period, the gold standard. So the Wall Street crash in itself, I wouldn't say, had in itself a direct or perhaps a primary role in generating the global conditions. But nevertheless, we have to remember that by the 1930s, the U.S. is a huge part of the world economy. By 1929, U.S. manufacturing is 40% of the entire world. It's twice as much as Germany and the United Kingdom combined. The U.S. also is the world's leading creditor, with New York surpassing London as the world's leading financial center. The U.S. also was the leading exporter, was the leading importer. So with a slump in the United States, obviously both imports and exports dropped by some assessments by almost 70%. So needless to say, American difficulties had repercussions around the world. And this tragically was especially true for Germany, which coming out of World War I relied heavily on international credit and relied a lot on American imports of German goods. So how did the Great Depression actually come to an end? There's a, obviously a, a great debate about this. I can't say that there is a consensus. The Great Depression in America really came to an end with mobilization for World War II. That really signaled change. This is, for example, for the first time with war mobilization, unemployment declined to single digits after about a decade of very high unemployment. So the Great Depression comes to an end with mobilization for war. But part of the question is when you think about the New Deal and the New Deal's effect, conservatives like to say the New Deal did not bring the country out of the Great Depression. It was the war, and they're correct. But nevertheless, the New Deal transformed American capitalism in some fundamental ways, in part in some of the ways that I mentioned previously, in terms of providing a new infrastructure for development, in terms of the investment in housing, in terms of creating that blue-collar middle class that I talked about earlier, really putting American capitalism on much firmer foundation for decades to come. So it's not just the question is not just about how the Great Depression ended, but also how American capitalism entered a long-standing period of great prosperity, at least through the 1970s, as a result of some of the structural adjustments that were put in place during the Great Depression. How did federal government fund the New Deal? Did they have to borrow? And who did they borrow from? Yes. First, a lot of it through borrowing and through high income taxes, but it turned out to actually be a good investment since in the aftermath of a lot of this money went to fund the New Deal, then it went to fund the war effort. A lot of this debt was actually, because of inflation in the post-war period, actually lost a lot of its value over time. So it was very sustainable and proved, I wouldn't say easy, but manageable for the federal government to pay back those bonds in the aftermath of the war. You mentioned the Wall Street bankers and financiers and stock market players who were playing very irresponsibly. Was anyone ever held accountable? They clearly lost all of their money themselves, but were they brought to account by the government? You know, quite a few of them, as you mentioned, lost money. Many of them lost their positions. But I think the real change brought about, in part as a result of the PCORA Commission, 
that I mentioned earlier is the loss of the notion that they were in charge, that they didn't have to be accountable to the public, that Wall Street was a private institution, that they were ultimately private men who could speculate, could sell, buy, and run that operation without outside interference. So I think this is a major shift for the place of American finance and how it relates to the overall American economy. The idea that no, uh, Wall Street needs to be scrutinized and that financial reports must be submitted and information must be disclosed and that it's ultimately the public's business and it's in the public interest to have oversight over those kinds of operations. So it made Wall Street into an entirely different place in the post-war period, much more public, in some ways a lot less exciting. I mean, now there's obviously much more of a return to that. But for a long time, Wall Street was not as innovative as uh, free from regulation, free from oversight. You know, looking back, when you look at American finance in the early decades of 20th century, you look at how these bankers operate, they really do think of the New York Stock Exchange as a private club. You know, you pay to get in and you get socialized into it by, say, attending Harvard or attending Yale. And then it's almost like a family business. It's not thought of as a public institution that is ultimately in charge of allocating public savings and the savings of the country. Noam Magor, thank you very much. My pleasure, thank you. How and Why History. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.